He tells stories so grand of this vast, timeless land, and they call it Sunday with Macca. I'm talking to Lachlan Gurling. We're in Grafton. You're from Tenderfield, Lachlan? Yes, I am. Yep. And you've got a load of hardwood. It looks like hardwood logs. Yes, I do, yeah. So what's the story with them? Where are they going? Uh, they're going to the port of Brisbane. Yeah, then they get shipped overseas to get milled up. So, How long have you been driving a truck, Lock? I've been driving trucks for about 10 years now. So it's not a bad way to earn a living, get yeah. to go out and have a look around. Mostly carrying trees and things like that, or and wood? Uh, these days, yeah. yeah. A fair bit of my career was done driving truck and dogs, but needed a bit of a change. So, And what sort of a rig you got? What's that? A Kenworth, T650. And your motto there says, better late than never. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it sort of just tells people to sort of slow down, take their time, yeah, no need to rush. I always ask truckies how the roads are. How, how are you finding the roads? Oh, rough and a bit bit busy, but um, yeah, we get through it all. All right, Lockie, nice to talk to you, mate. Lovely blue rig, beauty. A lot of weight in those logs, isn't there? Oh, yeah, there is a little bit, yeah. Nice to talk to you, Lachlan. Yes, you too. You have a good one, eh? Bloke with the runs in the backyard at Mum's. They love it all over Australia. I'm sleepy and yawning, but I love Sunday morning. So I switch on and lie back in bed. The city, the scrub, and the farmer in the pub, they love it all over Australia. There's a radio show that Australians all know. If you're rich or you ain't got a cracker. They tell stories so grand of this vast, timeless land, and they call it... Sunday with Macca. They all call it Sunday with Macca. Yeah, they all call it Sunday with Macca. Get on with it, Macca. I will. <clears throat> Good morning and welcome. That was Lachlan. Um, and Lachlan was driving a truck and he was outside his truck. It was in Grafton a couple of weeks ago. And the truck was loaded with logs. Now, I love, they weren't pine logs. Sometimes when say when you drive in Tasmania, there's trees on trees on trucks everywhere. You go, there's trees on trucks. They're pine trees, but these were hardwood logs. Now the thing I wanted to ask you about was these big logs on the end of them, and I'd say I I pasted out. It was about sixteen paces, so I'd say about fifty foot long. These are big, big hardwood logs, and on the end of the log, there's chalk marks, and one had say I can't remember exactly. It might have. 38 over 43, like stroke 43. And might, one might have 110 over 62. And the other one might have 28 over stroke 15, something like that. And, and I wanted to know what that meant. No, I meant to stop at a timber mill on the way up. To, and I don't know if it's about, um, you know, linear feet or what it's about, but um, it, uh, it interested me. And then Lachlan was uh, driving his truck and he was taking it to Brisbane and he said those logs were going overseas for working. Australian hardwoods are just the best. As I mentioned earlier, in the um, we were at Mount Gravatt last week doing, and we had look, we had five hundred people there in Mount Gravatt in the showground. It was lovely. Same at uh, Burley. Burley was a big crowd too. But um, in this showground, there were trees that were look, they were huge. They were and the, they were tallow wood. My guest this morning is a bloke called Stuart Coop, who I used to read, I think, in the Sydney Morning Herald. He used to write, I think, for the Herald and for newspapers generally about music. Stuart Coop, it's great to meet you, mate, and uh, thanks for coming in. Great to meet you too, Macca. Thank you. Uh, it's, a, it's a pleasure. Now, you've, you've written 
your life, really, is it? Your life, Shake Some Action? Is that the story? It's about you and how music shaped you from a boy in Lonnie to, um, yeah, you're living now in Sydney, but uh, yeah. you've been all over. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a book about a kid who, yes, grew up in a comparatively small, you know, city, second biggest town in Tasmania, uh, and dreamt of writing about, sharing his passion, his love for music and, you know, talking to influential and, and creative musicians and by a lot of good fortune and a fair bit of hard work ended up doing that. Yeah, and I suppose music, when people get the bug, music likes anything, like collecting bottle tops or, you know, riding bikes or whatever, it becomes your whole life, doesn't it? And um, how's that been? Have you analysed that, that your whole life has been music and you could have been doing something else, you could have been sailing the world or Whatever. Have you thought about that? I, I think about it all the time, but I'm pretty happy with the decision I made. Yes, I grew up listening to the two stations in Launceston, 70X, 7LA, and just fell in love with music. I loved it. And the first time I'd saved up, I think it was a dollar and five from doing the paper rounds, I went off to the local ha- uh, white goods shop, which also had a few records up the mm. back, and I bought Friday on My Mind because I'd heard it on the radio, and I loved it. I still have that copy of it. And and from that point on, I just was obsessed, fascinated by music. And then, you know, it wasn't too long after that I, I guess, uh, in, innately I was a fan. I wanted to tell everyone about the music mm. that I loved. I was mortified when my I played Friday on My Mind to my parents. And my dad said, what's that racket? What's that noise? Turn it off. And I burst into tears. I, I hadn't got the memo about music me, me, you know, being meant to, to separate kids and their parents. I, I wanted everyone to love my music. And, and I still do. That's why I've written, just yeah. to share that you know, unbridled passion for it, what I hear. It's probably a bit harder these days. We'll go into that a little later. But um, Ari, you're talking about going to the, your record shop or the, the white goods shop that had records. I remember... Um, when I was older, um, teenager, and I'd go to a record, they were, had record shops, and, and there always used to be a long folder of, of 45 singles, and I'd flip through them and I found all these things that you never see any. Uh, I mean, I found the Dillards doing things like uh, Bob Dylan songs and, and things that I was just interested in. You could go through and you could find stuff, but I suppose it's music's changed, and I I sometimes think you know what's I listen to music. I get in a lift somewhere, and or I go into a shop somewhere, and the music's sort of anathema to me. And I love music. I love melody, and I love great lyrics and things like that. But I suppose there's great lyrics in rap songs, but you've got to you've got to listen really hard because they're harder to it's harder to embrace if you know what I mean. Look, it, it's all changed. I mean, you know, I do get tired of people who say, oh, you know, all the great music was made in the 60s or the 50s or the 70s or even going back to the, we talk, you were talking about the big bands before Duke Ellington and Count Basie. But I just go, there's great music being made all the time. It's if, harder to find, I reckon. Maybe. But, uh, you know, I, I, I listen a lot uh, and I immerse myself. You know, I'm fortunate I get the opportunity to immerse myself in it. But, you know, I'm still the guy who ca- cannot pass a record shop, and cannot pass, got to go in and look through the racks and get on my hands and knees and go down, what's, what's in that box underneath the racks? What have they got there? Uh, so, I, you know, I'm still out there looking for, you know, records. I mean, I listen to a lot of music digitally. Well, but the I records st- are back, aren't they? I mean, vinyl, I'm talking to vinyl. Is, is that coming back? Oh, is it back? I mean, who... You- who would cassettes, have, uh, even cassettes, and and the the strangest thing, Macca, was recently, I was talking to, uh, I was actually Elvis Costello, I was doing an interview with him, and his new album was coming out on yes vinyl, on CD, 
digitally, cassette and eight track. Wow. I mean, <laughs> I mean, you would be hard-pressed to have picked the vinyl revival. I thought it was all over. Mm. You know, everybody did. They thought CDs had taken over the, the universe. But uh, for vinyl to come back, that was a big surprise. Cassettes even more a, su- a surprise. And I, I've just got a funny feeling that the eight-track revival is not going to fly. <laughs> but, uh, it's, uh, uh, that's the cartridge you're talking about. The, the cartridge, yes. Yeah, yes, yeah. the old eight-track cartridges. Yeah. They sounded good. Oh, they were gone, I think, before my... I, I guess they were around when I started listening to music in the late 60s, early 70s. But, mm. they, you know, they, they were money for people on the road and put in their trucks and, and I'm, drive. I'm talking to Stuart Coop. He's the author of Shake Some Action, about his life in music. And... I suppose writing about it, reading about it, I, I noticed there was an interview with Paul McCartney because he's touring here again and I think, is there anything more that Paul McCartney can say that he hasn't said before? The only thing I'd like to talk to Paul McCartney about is his bass playing. All the rest, he's said everything about every. or maybe about about um, asking about um, Jerry and the Pacemakers and the competition they had, but, but the rest of it, it's just small waftam of... Talking, so you've got to do that all the time. How do you, how do you get new? How do you get different with um, people who've been interviewed and interviewed, like Elvis Costello? You just try and ask them some things that maybe they haven't been asked before, and you try and get a fix on things other than going. You know, how did you, how did you make your new record? You know, when do you go on the road? Because they're sick of talking about it, and I'm sick of hearing about it. Yeah, exactly. So you you try and get them off target. You know, when I walk into an interview situation, particularly if I'm in a hotel room with them, I try and see what they've been reading, you know, what magazines are on the table, try and have a look and see what's still silently on the television. Just get them... You know, I spent more time talking to Mick Jagger about cricket, and he yeah. was interested in cricket. Yes, and I'm interested in cricket. Mm. Um, if we're talking, you know, I try and go. You know, well, what do you, what's your football team? You know, just anything that will drag them away try from music. And yeah, and, try and, and engage, evolve them as a person. Yeah, and, yeah, engage engage them. And you know, one thing I've always well, I've learnt over the years is, is to listen to them and see where they want to go, mm. see what they want to talk to and not bombard them with what I think they want to talk about. I'm talking to Stuart Coop. I've, I haven't read your book, but I leaf through it as I do with books. I read, there was a bit about radio and I can't find it now. I'll put a little sticker and it's come out. You, you talk about radio and you talk about all sorts of things. Radio was the great way to break a, you know, when we grew up, radio, we waited till midnight and they'd play the Beatles' next album, whether whatever it was, and we, we stayed up till... All that time, I'd listen to 3UZ in Melbourne all the time. Um, the greater 3UZ. I used to, even when I was out jackarooing out in the middle of New South Wales, I'd, I'd tune in and get 3UZ. And it was just magic, magic. I loved it. Uh, so radio was a great way to break it. doesn't happen so much now, does it, or does it? Look, it does too. I, mean, I still listen to radio all the time. I present my own radio shows. And I still think that, uh, that radio has a really important role to play. I mean, anyone can put together a streaming playlist and do that sort of stuff. But nothing <clears throat> will ever beat a curated radio show where someone says, hey, I've, I've taken one for the team. I've listened to all this music. And I'm going to suggest to you that these are four or five records or artists that you might want to listen to more. And that hasn't really changed, you know, over decades and decades. You know, like you, I had a crystal radio that used to attach to the telephone and I I would sit in Launceston listening to, you know, Chris Winter on Room to Move on the ABC and and that shaped my music listening. He was right over there. He was was really close to the microphone, Chris, wasn't he? he, And and you could hear him. 
that you can hear that. Wonderfully knowledgeable, though, and, and so many records and artists that I still listen to were because I heard them on his show. But no, I think, I think radio is, is important, and it's where I find lots and lots of new music. I'll be sitting listening to, you know, community radio stations, and, and the great thing now with the internet, of course, you know, I can be listening to radio stations right around the globe, you know, just at any particular time, I can be listening to it. You know, a, a jazz station in Denmark. I could be listening to an avant-garde radio show in New York. Uh, and, and quite often, I'll just sit there with. I'll just punch in a station and go. I wonder what they're playing. Uh, and it's it's well, very exciting. Yeah, very music is exciting. Ah, oh, uh, Maka. Yep. Paul Freestone. Yes, Paul. Just a call. In. Oh, hi, mate. Uh, Long time listener, first time caller. Uh, just calling in from Traverse City, Michigan. Um, it's a beautiful day here, about 25 degrees. We've just done a road trip from Loomis in California uh, to here. And uh, it's uh, just been to a beautiful wooden boat show in town. And, uh, and what, life's good. What, uh, what, what's the city you're at? Traverse City. Traverse City. Uh, if you look at, yeah, near the Canadian border, really, not that far from it. Uh huh. And you're on uh, what? Yeah, a, a, a trip to find out? Are you on holidays or something? Or? Oh, I, I wish. No, we've got a, a friend up here that's uh, we've known. We met in the Whit Sundays uh, in the eighties, and uh, uh, we've come over here and to drive her little Chevy truck across with her German Shepherd in, because this is where she was brought up. In, uh, in Michigan, and uh, uh, so we've done that road trip, and after this, we go back to uh, Carmel, Monterey, for the um, classic race track over there called Laguna Seca, which we're going to race our old Austin Healy. Oh, wow. What, and what, you've taken your Austin Healy over there, have you? Yeah, this is uh, the fifth time we've raced there at the, what they call the Reunion. Wow. It's one of the biggest historic races uh, in the world. And uh, and the reason I rang in, by the way, mate, is, uh, of course, we're in road transport. And uh, we heard about the Casino Truck Show. And uh, it sounds like guys have done a great job there. And, uh, yeah, so, uh, yeah, we're over here. And a bit of a love trip across nearly 4,000 kilometres, by the way, from Loomis to here. Uh and on I-80, what they call most of the way. Interstate 80. Through, yeah. uh, Interstate 80, yeah. And uh, it's been great. And we're sitting here in about 25 degrees weather. Uh, we're sitting on Lake Michigan at the moment. I just had a glass of wine, which is really nice. And, uh, <laughs> and what's the name and, of the race? Uh, yeah, what, life's good. What's the name of the race again? Uh, it's called Laguna Seca at Monterey. At Monterey, which is near Carmel in California, huh? That, that's it. Yeah, exactly right. Down in Monterey, I should play that by the animals. Remember that song, Down in Absolutely. Monterey. Wow, wow, wow. Paul, great to talk to you, mate. Good on you. Thanks, thanks, Maka. Thanks, mate. Bye. Uh, Kathleen's in Casino. Morning, Kathleen. Good morning, Maka. How are you? Yeah, good. Thank you. Um, yeah, I was just wanting to. I, you were talking about um, the truck show in Casino and. I'm actually on my way from Mongogory to south of Casino over to Lennox Head. And, yeah, all the trucks are still parked in the caravan parks and along the side of the road. They look spectacular. They've done a great job of cleaning them up. 700-odd. 700, 700 
Yeah, loads. <laughs> yeah, they had the horns beeping for like two hours. <laughs> oh, dear. <laughs> <laughs> it was amazing, though. And what are you doing? You're in Mongogory now, did you say? I, I, I stayed out at Mongogory last night, and then I'm on my way to uh, Lennox Head to go dragon boat paddling. Oh, wow. Good on you. That was a nice yeah. morning. A nice morning. Beautiful morning. I'd have loved to have seen that yesterday in Casino. We should have been there. Yeah, it was spectacular. Maybe make it for next year. Yeah, that'd be a good idea. Yeah. All right, Kath. Good on you. Nice to talk to you. And you too. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you. Bye. Vince, uh, where are you, Vince? Good day, Maka. I'm in in Pattaya in Thailand, Maka. How are you this morning? Yeah, I'm good, mate. What are you doing? Mate, I'm over here. I've brought my daughter over. She's part of uh, the junior Australian team for the Australian team for dragon boating. And there's a large contingent over here that are going to be competing from Monday in the international dragon boat well, races. Kathleen was just it's just going over to Lennox. Lennox had to do dragon boating. So there you go. Well, this, go yeah. On, tell me more. But my time. Well, mate, the reason I called, look, it's 3.30 in the morning now, but my body clock's still on Sydney time. And um, we used to, my daughter, the, the junior team has been training for the last three months at, from, they'd be out there on the water at the fish markets there, just under the Anzac Bridge at seven o'clock every Sunday morning. And they were training a couple of days during the week as well. So the routine me and my daughter had would be to uh, put you on in the morning as we were driving from Mortdale to the fish market. So I had to uh, I had to give you a call as over here. I told her I would. Uh, good on um, you, Vinci. Well, yeah, that's so. pretty exciting. How many's in a dragon boat team? Heaps. Uh, oh yeah. Look, there's uh, generally a twenty boat uh, crew yeah. and a smaller boat of ten. Um, and look, the contingent over here is uh, we've. The Australian team's taken up a whole grand hotel here in Bataya. There's about three or three or four hundred uh, paddlers from juniors to seniors in the Australian team. I just thought wanted to give them some recognition because it's a great sport. They're a great bunch of people, the dragon boaters, and and they're really competitive. And I doesn't you don't hear about it too much. No, but it's it's a it's a really big event over here. It's uh, there's going to be cut, cut the we've bumped into Canadians. There's an American teams, uh, Chinese. Uh, if you don't mind, Mac, I'll give you a call next week and let you know how it's all gone, how many gold medals they've won. <laughs> That'd be good. That'd be good. Yeah. And what's the name? Of the, it's a an international competition, is it? International Dragon? Yeah, it's the, absolutely. It's put on by the International Dragon Boating Federation, and uh, it's countries from all around the world. Uh, we're, we're competing. There's a Royal Navy... Uh, we're competing at the Royal Navy Rowing and Canoeing Training Centre here at Pattaya. Um, and it's yeah, it's just it's just it's always a lovely event. There's uh, there's always events in Australia, national and state events that happen, and all these dragon boaters. Uh, I got introduced to it because my daughter took it up in high school, and it's just a great sport. It's just uh, yeah, and and it's got me all the way over here with her. And like I said, I she got introduced to you um, every Sunday morning going to training for the last three months, Maka. <laughs> that's, so, uh, that's the way, Vincey. Good on you. How old is she? What's your daughter's name? How old is she? My daughter's uh, Celeste. She's uh, 16. Uh-huh. And, yeah, so she's in the junior team, the junior women's team, and they're a strong team. Uh, like I said, they've been training for the last three months pretty heavily, three days a week. 
and uh, we're looking forward to what's going to be ahead in the next week. How exciting for a 16-year-old to go yeah. to Thailand. And uh, what, yeah, what sort of a joint's Pattaya, Vince, from your, uh, your uh, knowledge? Look, uh, where I'm staying is a lovely luxury resort. Uh, mate, I'm overlooking the Gulf of Thailand. I've got a room that I've got the overlooking the, the whole Gulf down to Pattaya. Beautiful resort. It's a city of contrast. I've been down to Pattaya City. It's, you know, there's... Uh, the old and the new, if you if you understand what I mean, you yeah. see the uh, the old style Thai and the and the new style. It's the first time I've ever been to Asia, so it's a bit of an experience for me. Um, but they're lovely people. The Thai are such such lovely people, Mac. I really they are so accommodating and friendly and respectful. It's it's just really nice. Um, yeah, that, that's uh, really enriching when you meet uh, and go to places like that, isn't it? You just you, oh, know, you notice it. You notice it straight away too, don't you? You notice it straight away. Oh, it's it's really they're they're really such uh, nice people. It's it's actually I, I have, I've happened to be working with a couple of uh, Thai people recently, and and they've and they've been teaching. They taught me a few words before I got here, so been able to say hello and goodbye and thank you. <laughs> well, say, <laughs> so good, say goodbye and tie and we'll, we'll talk to you again. Uh, well, I, 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 I tell a lie. I don't say, I know, don't know, I know how to say thank you. So, well, cup kun cup. What cup, is it? Cup kun ka. Cup kun ka. Cup kun ka. Cup kun ka. Good on you, Vince. I'll talk to you next week, maybe. Good on you, mate. I will. If you don't mind, I'll give you a call. I'll let you know how they've all gone, Maka. Be Have a good day, mate. Good on you, mate. Thanks, mate. Bye. Good on you, mate. Justin's in morning, Justin. Traverse City. G'day, Macca. How are you? Good, thank Justin Morris here in Traverse City, Michigan. I just spoke to a bloke in Traverse City, Michigan. Yeah, that's. Uh, I thought I'd give you a call because there's not many Australians this part of the world, and uh, it's a fairly remote, far-flung part of the USA. Not many people visit, and I thought, oh, isn't that funny? I listen to Macca on a on a Saturday afternoon to get my fix of Australiana, and I. Heard another Aussie in this part of the world. There you go. What do you what What do you do there, mate? Well, I met a girl. They'll get you. <laughs> you met a girl, so you and you live in. Tra- yeah, yeah. Yep. Yeah, we live in Traverse City here. We uh, I married into a, a local family here. They're actually this part of the world is renowned for its uh, farming. It's agri- It's uh, fruit farming. It's renowned for cherries. And the family I married into, they have a, a cherry farm here that's been farming cherries and other fruit for 150 years. And this uh, this past week, it was actually in the news here because it's rather sad week. They've just had to cut all of the cherry trees down, pull them out of the out of the ground, and what? let the trees die because the economic circumstances of fruit farming in the USA are becoming unfeasible. Really. Isn't that funny? Because in the shops in Australia during uh, our winter, there's always uh, cherries from America. I'm not sure if they come from Michigan, but there's always cherries. They're very dear. They're about $30, $35 a kilo. But um, there's always cherries uh, in uh, in a fruit shop. You can still find a fruit shop and not just a supermarket, but they have them there too. But um, they're always cherries from America, uh, American cherries. And, yeah, as I said, they're about $30, $35 a, a kilo. So... Uh, well, that's right. Yeah, and, and, until about a week ago, uh, uh, there would have been a fair chunk of them coming from this farm that I'm living in here. But now they've had to cut them all down because it's well, it's the same with the yeah. or- oranges here in Australia. Remember, they bulldozed all the orange trees, and sometimes they do it all the time. And and grapes, and you know, all that sort of stuff. It's uh, 
Yeah. Well, that's right. The, the processing plants that buy the cherries, they have now worked out that they can get cherries from uh, Turkey for a lot cheaper than they can get them from the local farmers here in the USA. And it's funny, there's a processing plant here that's just about one kilometer, maybe two kilometers from the farm. Uh, but they're now buying cherries from Turkey on the other side of the world because it's that much cheaper to get them from overseas than it is to get locally because uh, in Turkey, the government subsidizes the farming. So it's kind of been to the, the behest of the local farmers here. Yeah, it's a tough life being a yeah. farmer, isn't it? You never know what's around the corner. And, but cherries, see, cherries, you would think that they, you could export them to China and things like that because and Asian countries they, and Jap, Japan, they love their cherries, don't they? Well, yeah, that's right. They're grown, and, and that's another country that they're able to get cherries from cheaper now is, is from China. So, yeah, I imagine they're, they're looking after themselves. But, yeah, it's, a, it's interesting being in this, this part of the world and seeing how the how life works on the land. Yeah, it's also, different, very different from Australia. I miss home. That's why it's good to, to listen to you guys on, on Saturday artwork, Saturday well, evening here. Well, nice to know you're listening in Traverse City. Justin, Justin, what do you do over there? You got a job or...? Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm not. I'm not a farmer. I, I used to be an athlete. I was a, a cyclist many moons ago, and now I run a business, uh, coaching other people to to get the most out of their their cycling life. Uh-huh. Uh huh. And the uh, Tour de France has just been on, hasn't it? Yeah, that's right. Yep. I, d- I never got to that level, but that was. Uh, yeah, that's always an exciting time of year for people in cycling. Lots of bike riders. Well, lots of bike riders all over the world, but I suppose there's. Uh, Heaps of them in America. Yeah, it's not too common. It's, uh, it, I mean, this part of the world, it's, it's actually there is a famous pro cyclist from this town, actually, but it's, uh, it's not, uh, it's not huge. I suppose it'd be similar to what it is in Australia. Australia, we'd have you know rugby and cricket here. They've got uh, what football, gridiron, we call it, and uh, and baseball are the main uh, the main sports that dominate the. What's the baseball team for Michigan? Uh, Tigers. Detroit Tigers. The Detroit Tigers, exactly. And Detroit's not the place it was, is it? No, yeah, that's right. Yeah, it used to be manufacturing cars and not much else goes on there now. No. I heard they were turning some of that land back into agriculture, but, you know... Who knows? Who knows? Well, yeah, a lot of actually, this town and uh, the guy that called in before, he said he was sitting by the lake drinking wine, and it's like that's what a lot of the farms here have were once cherry farms, and now they're making a lot more money out of viticulture and tourism. So there's yeah, a lot of wineries going in and like uh, farm stay type things. So you got to think of something else to do to uh, for this land that my wife's family are part of here. Justin, nice to know you're listening in Traverse City, mate. And, uh, yeah, keep listening. Keep in touch. Cheers, Macca. Good keep on you. Keep up the good work. Love it. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks, mate. This is the All Over News. This is the All Over News, and I think it's timely that we talk about Clement Rag and the 1902 drought. As you know, the Weather Bureau has said it's going to be a drier than normal winter and a drier than normal spring, and maybe we'll have drought just round the corner. Our weather correspondent, Richard Whittaker, and with the help of Bob Crowder from his book The Wonders of the Weather, says this. 
The so-called Federation drought was a succession of abnormally dry years across much of eastern Australia that extended from 1896 to 1902, with 1902 the driest year. This resulted in agricultural devastation on a scale not seen before. The situation became so dire that the New South Wales government declared Wednesday the 26th of Feb, 1902, to be a day of humiliation and prayer across the state with businesses urged to refrain from trading. In addition, the public were asked to attend church for large prayer services in an attempt to break the drought. The Queensland government meteorologist Clement Lindley Rag announced that he would also try to break the drought by using so-called Steiger Vortex guns. Rag set up six Steiner Vortex guns at Charleville in Queensland with the object of breaking this persistent drought. On 26th of September 1902, Rag thought that the clouds would be suitable for rainmaking and the guns were ceremoniously fired at one-minute intervals. The project was an abject failure and the ensuing criticism may have cost Rag his chance of becoming the first Commonwealth meteorologist when responsibility for meteorological observations was passed to the newly formed Commonwealth Government after Federation. A little about Rag, before taking up his post in Queensland, Rag had become fascinated with the work of Eduard Bruckner, a German geographer and climatologist, and his theory that damp, cold, warm, dry fluctuations followed a 35-year cycle. Rag decided to use the Bruckner cycle to produce long-range forecasts for Queensland, and for this purpose he recruited a 16-year-old youth, Inigo Jones, to assist him. Inigo went on to become Australia's best-known long-range forecaster, basing his predictions on sunspot and planetary cycles with a healthy mix of sound climatology. But back to Rag, he was one of the first, probably the first, meteorologist to give names to tropical cyclones. He started with letters from the Greek alphabet and then progressed through Greek and Roman mythology to the use of feminine names and finally the names of politicians. This appealed to Rag's sense of humour. He disliked many of the politicians of the day and felt that they would be less than pleased to have erratic storms named after them. He thought that both the cyclones and the politicians were sometimes national disasters. And back to the Federation drought was thought to be, is thought to be, one of the worst in Australia's recorded history mainly because of the enormous stock losses. And the Federation drought ended, of course, with a good fall of rain. This is the All Over News. And as we mentioned on the program, VVV, Vietnam Veterans Vigil Day, was last Thursday on the 3rd of August. I've had quite a number of emails from people who went to memorials, grave sites and had a vigil, like this from Paul Quinn in Toowoomba. He says there was one Vietnam serviceman, Peter James Sheriff, who was buried in the Toowoomba Cemetery. He was 20 years old and killed six days before his 21st birthday. A group of about 25 people gathered at Peter's grave on Thursday, including his two sisters, Vietnam veterans and schoolmates from St Mary's, the school in Toowoomba which Peter attended in the 60s. Dennis Condon had prepared a very fitting and touching service for Peter and two current students from St Mary's attended. It was a very special occasion and reminded everyone of the importance of remembering and respecting our fallen service men and women. It also reminded us that we all need to be grateful for the sacrifices that all Defence Service personnel pay to defend our country and our way of life. There's a car bumper sticker that we're seeing more and more which says, if you can't stand behind our Defence personnel, try standing in front of them. 
We ask so much of our defence personnel, says Paul. We expect them to defend our country. Then there are many who do nothing but criticise and pull them down. These whingers and critics and naysayers all need a dose of reality, says Paul Quinn. And from Philip Desborough, our numismatist, he says, Last week in the Dixon Room of the State Library, that's New South Wales, I guess, an auction was held, the main highlight being the Victoria Cross, awarded posthumously to... Corporal John Jack Alexander French at Milne Bay on the afternoon of 4th of September 1942, a company of an Australian infantry battalion attacked a Japanese position where it encountered terrific rifle and machine gun fire. Advance on this section of which Corporal French was in command was held up by fire from three enemy machine gun posts, whereupon Corporal French, ordering his section to take cover, advanced and silenced one of the posts with grenades... He returned to his section for more grenades and silenced the second post. Armed with a Thompson submachine gun, he then attacked the third post, firing from the hip as he went forward. He was badly hit by fire from the post but continued to advance. The enemy gunfire then ceased and his section pushed on to find all the members of the three crews had been killed and that Corporal French had died in front of the third gun pit. The medals sold for $1,460,000. Other items that sold included four 1930 pennies, ranging from $18,000 to $22,000 each, a 1980 20-pound banknote, be worth $28,000, 1920 50-pound note, $20,000, and a 1924 100-pound note, $41,000. And for those on a lesser budget, says Philip Desborough, one of the best printed reference items in relation to pre-decimal banknotes was the hardbound copy of the Alan Nicholson Auction Catalogue of Australian Banknotes and Paper Currency, 1995. It sold for $50, says Philip Desborough. This is the All Over News, and I think my favourite thing in life is probably bread followed by cakes. If they're French, even better. So when I bumped into a Frenchman last week while I was on the road, I just had to talk to him about pain, P-A-I-N, bread. I'm in Byron, or just out of Byron Bay, actually, at a little... French bakery called Ultime, is that right? L'Ultime. L'Ultime. But yeah. L'Ultime is correct, it's a French way to say it. And your name is David? Tetu. Tetu. What does Tetu mean? Tetu means stubborn. Stubborn? Yeah. Oh, right. Yeah. David, tell me about you and when did you come to Australia? You're from France, obviously. Yeah, I came in 99. 45 day trip from Darwin to Sydney and I fell in love with the country. And I said, look, I saw Michel Patisserie. Baker's Delight, and I say, I need to come back and do my own stuff, and here I am. You were always a, a chef, a cook? Yeah, 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 I started at 17 years old, get my master in pastry and chocolate maker as well. Is that a great tradition in France? You're born with food all around you because all your family, your mother will spend a lot of time cooking at home, you know what I mean? You're born with that, you know, with food around you all the time, you know what I mean? So, and why did you come to Australia, do you think? It's a bit complicated. Mm. Yeah, yeah, I had a bit of a trouble in my life uh, in France with my lost my father and stuff like that and I said okay I need to go somewhere and so I've done a trip for the millennium and uh, uh, I was thinking coming as well for the Olympic Games two years after that and um, yes fall in love with Australia you know what did you fall in love with the heat or the uh, the wide open spaces or? yeah look it's a beautiful country you know I went I love the outback I love the way the Australians are very easy going you know what I mean and no racism no violence Australia when I was like France 30 years ago, you know what I mean? So, yeah, no, it's a beautiful country. 
And do you like cooking? You obviously like cooking. You make these great extravagances and strawberry tarts and they're, they're almost works of art. It's kind of a heart. You have to be passionate of what you're doing, you know what I mean? Because it's a hard job. Hospitality, you know, working uh, 16 hours a day on the weekend, 4 o'clock in the morning. Uh, the new generation, actually, they don't even want to take over because they don't want to get up in the morning. They don't want to work on the weekend for 25 bucks or 30 bucks an hour. So we're probably the last of us. But don't yeah. say that. Don't say that. But that's a common theme that people have told me about getting younger generation to work in yeah. whatever. Yeah. They only want to work when they want to work, it seems. It is difficult. Mm. It's going to be more and more difficult for all this uh, young generation to uh, take over all the great things we used to do, you know what I mean? They've got their own things to follow as well and uh, adapt themselves to the new uh, future and stuff like that, you know what I mean? So A baker's lot has always been hard. You get up early in the morning. Do you get time for play and what do you do? Not much, really, you know what I mean? Uh, you sacrifice a lot of your life at work. It's really difficult to combine everything together, you know what I mean? You have to, or you must find a, a partner, your wife or girlfriend who will share the same passion as you do. Because, you know, when you wake up at 4, 3, 2 o'clock in the morning, yes, it's, it's quite difficult, even for the kids. So, David, how did you cope with COVID and inflation and things like that? What, have you always just had the one shop or what? Well, I used to have three shops. One in the main street in Baron Bay, one in Balina, and the, the factory outlet in the industrial estate. And we've been suffering the last six, seven years very, very, very much. You know, we start like a long time ago with the bushfire, it was a bit difficult for us. And then the COVID hit. We had three times major flooding in Lismore and here around this area was really, really bad for people. And now the inflation. And even, like I said, the new generation, you know, they don't really want to get up and find a hospitality job. So the staff, we are on the staff. It's really, really difficult. The inflation, the electricity price, 25% up last month. You know what I mean? So it's getting harder and harder really really difficult and you can't keep putting the price up can you really i mean there's a certain limit that's it you know because your rent go up let's say five percent per year you know what i mean with pretty pretty high around here after 20 years they will be 100 percent if i put my price up 100 percent i will not sell nothing anymore so every year that's just the profit was going low and low and low and low you know so it's getting difficult it's really getting difficult, you know. If you don't have a good passion about it and uh, keep doing the best you can, you just just close the door. Do you have a lot of French friends here in Australia? A lot of French people come to Australia? French people, they, 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 they're interesting, they're funny because they don't live in community. You will have Chinese community, Japanese community, but you don't see really French community. You know what I mean, because I think the French, they don't like to live with each other. You know what I mean? Like they said, pretty arrogant or, you know, <laughs> stuff like that. But Spoken by a Frenchman, yeah. Yeah, French. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm an Aussie now. Well, David, the stubborn one, keep being stubborn and keep getting up early. Thank you for your muse. It's wonderful. Thank you for your time as well. Thank you. I much appreciate it. Alistair's in Adelaide. Morning, Alistair. Yeah. Hi, Mac. Uh, I, <clears throat> I was listening to the, uh, the birds that you were talking about that were migrating. The shearwater mutton bird is a very uh, important bird down at Phillip Island, uh, and it's coming back around about now, and it leaves on Anzac Day, April 25th, mm. around that time, thousands of them, and they go a big figure eight around the world, um, around Russia, Ch- China, yeah, and there's a guy who's written a book, The Flight Path, on it. Um, but, uh, yeah, it is, it's an amazing bird. It just um, um, goes right around the world and then 
comes back in in September. But the the young, the babies sit there for six weeks, all fattened up, and the parents leave. And then six weeks later, they take off and know exactly where to go. They know the flight path and follow them right around the world. Then they all come back. It's part of their DNA. Yeah, yeah. It's it's just um, it's one of those things. My father brought us up shooting and then bird watching and then. Jeremy Boot, the well-known bird artist, that's my brother, he's put a lot of work in on birds and teaching people about migration and, um, you know, saving the cockatoo down at uh, Kangaroo Island, building boxes for them. And he's dedicated his whole life to painting and, you know, just looking after birds. And uh, so there's some amazing things you can do, but... We had, a, we had a really good life when we were kids and, and one of them was getting out in the ocean spearfishing and the second one was surfing, which I've done a lot of. Mm-hmm. And, and, and that's how we recognise seabirds and things. And if kids want to get some freedom, that one of the best ways is to get a surfboard. You can get a big soft board and get out there and, and learn yourself. You can teach yourself and, and that'll give them freedom for the rest of their life if yeah. they can... If they can own a board, and uh, and 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 feel proud of connecting with the ocean and all the things that go with it, oh, that, that's, or, that's, or, or even a canoe yeah. or a kayak or something, I suppose it's yeah, the same any, feeling. The, the Bond University last year, a year ago, they did a study on, and they called it "Just Add Water" and how therapeutic <laughs> it is for, for the mental health. Now tell and, me, uh, tell me about yeah. uh, the flight path. Is that written by Jeremy Boot? That's not yet your brother. Is that written by him? No, now? that that's not my brother. No, but he he's taught me as we were kids. He taught me all. Uh, we were both kids, but he made me aware of the the shearwater and um and uh, yeah. who wrote the fl- the flight path? You know, I'm not sure. No, I'm not sure. But it um it, it's just a fascinating story. You know, um, yeah, and it's worth. It's worth teaching in schools, you know, to give kids an idea of what what happens exactly. out there. Exactly, and they they they're in Tassie and on Flinders Island, the the shearwaters, aren't they? And the, the part yeah. of the diet. I had a taste of some mutton bird. I can tell you, I, no, I don't think I'll ever do that again. Um, very, yeah. Uh, yeah, very gamey, sort of greasy, sort of fatty, sort of feel it, about them. It, it would be about ten years ago. My wife and I went to New Zealand, and we had some friends over there and we were staying with them and they took us down the fish shop to get some fish for dinner and underneath there were a whole row of mutton birds in the window all like chickens oh. uh, in in the uh, in the showcase so they get a quota over there mm. and that, that you know they can kill them and sell them you know the early pioneers ate them the sealers and things like that yeah people like that so it's a fascinating history and it's a real australian icon one that one day it turned up late and all the scientists were getting on the return, they were getting worried it was two weeks late, and uh, apparently it had gone that they'd found some krill down. They turned left, went down and helped themselves in the Antarctic, and and uh, fattened up a bit more and arrived two weeks late. Alistair, you know? great to talk to you, mate. Yeah. I'll remember that. All I'm right. going to I'm going to buy another board. Okay, good on you. Get, get a board for sure. I'm I'm holding my exhibition in Waverley. Uh, uh, Bondi, hopefully, and uh, the evolution of surfing. So hopefully, I can get that over there and teach kids uh, an and, entry into surfing. And yeah. you've had that in Adelaide, haven't you? I've, I've got in. I'm doing a show for about a, a two weeks in a in about six weeks' time. Then hopefully, I'll get over to Bondi, and then everyone can enjoy it. And 
it's a good entry point, Macca, into surfing. I'll have the uh, the soft boards there and the education on how to how to enter the water and uh, right. feel us, safe. Send us some details, Alistair. Good on you, mate. Will do. Thanks, Macca. Thanks, good. mate. Bye. Yeah, good morning, Macca. This is David and Mandy, and uh, we're calling you from the top of Shepherd's Peak, which is in Expedition National Park, and we're currently sitting on the top looking west out towards Carnarvon Gorge. Your listeners will probably know where Carnarvon Gorge is. Uh, we can see Carnarvon Gorge in the distance and the moon just coming down to the horizon. So we thought we'd love to give you a call and say good day. Uh, well, good on you. I'd love to be there with you. Where did you say it is? Shepherd's Peak, is it? Yeah, Shepherd's Peak. It's in Expedition National Park, which is a little bit west of Rockhampton. Um, and a little bit east of Carnarvon Gorge. And what are you? Where are you from, David? Um, we're from Brisbane, and we're out on the road uh, for about eight weeks, travelling, seeing a bit of the countryside again. Uh, we've been listening to you since probably 1987, so been long-time listeners, first-time callers. And lots of people on the road. Uh, yeah, packed on the road. Um, out where we are, though, this is a little bit um, four-wheel drive to get into here, so not many people in here. There's only two other campers in with us uh, last night, so um, peaceful and quiet. And um, we sent you uh, a, a panorama picture of where we're sitting, so um, <laughs> hope you've got that and you can see what we're looking at. Well, I yeah, it's here somewhere. Um, I can hear the sound when you... T- I can... You know, you can tell the difference when you're outside. That's why we do our outside broadcasts outside because there's a particular sound about when you're outside. Um, it sounds it's lovely and it sounds dead and flat. It's a lovely flat sound to me, to my ears, and I can tell you're out somewhere. Yeah, where nothing. Yeah, we have, we have a nice, gentle, southerly blowing this morning, right on the top of the peak. It was. Uh, five degrees this morning in the van so probably about two or three outside so a little bit cool this morning but it'll warm up to about 23 24 today and uh, we've got a little bit more bushwalking to do so um, it's magnificent views that we get here it's just wonderful oh it sounds like a lovely place i'll have to put it on my list of things to do dave yeah uh, yeah, you know, I don't know that you get a broadcast from up here, but <laughs> absolutely <laughs> magnificent. Oh, uh, well, uh, Peter Scott and uh, Dylan, our two uh, men on the ground, they can do anything, just about, just about anything, but, you know, never say never. <laughs> yeah, we we saw you at Burley a few weeks ago. And oh, did we you? Were on, yeah, and we were on the road uh, when you were at Mount Cravat, so we travelled and listened to you, but... Um, it's nice to be able to paint the picture, you know, for your listeners, as we've heard so many other times before. So the country's green, really green in places, but then really dry in others. Burley was good, wasn't it? I, I really enjoyed Burley Heads. It was great, great fun. And uh, Mount Cravat's lovely to be outside with people, and they just yeah. come and sit there on their on their little pews and like at Mount Cravat. It was, was fantastic. Yeah, it was magnificent at Burley. It was a beautiful morning that day. I'll say, and the people are lovely, lovely voices, and uh, it's a real great feeling. There's something, you know, we we haven't done a lot of OBs. We're starting to do some now, which is good, but um, uh, there's a great feeling, uh, and and a big crowd, you know, four or 500 people, which so, um, yeah, people are still listening, which is great. It is magnificent, and you paint the picture for everybody, Macca. <laughs> 
Uh, pressure, Dave. Pressure. Um, nice to talk to you, mate. Thanks, Macca. See you. Bye. Oh, g'day, Macca. This is Murray calling in from uh, Robinvale. Uh, Murray, the beekeeper. Hi, Murray, the beekeeper. Yeah, yeah. We were uh, rung a few years ago. You were kind enough to uh, send out a copy of Neil Danaher's biography to me. And, um, yeah, we're just letting you know that uh, despite the incursion of the varroa mite, the uh, pollination season down here in the Riverine is going on. We're trucking about 600 beehives this morning into the uh, almond orchards around there. They're just starting to flower, and we're coming from Queensland with our bees. And it's like um, what many people might have heard about with the varroa mite and everything like that on our doorstep. We've still managed to, um, the industry still managed to get about 140,000 beehives what, what's, down to this area. Yeah, your phone gets a bit funny when you keep moving. Murray, what's, what's the varroa mite story? Is it uh, under control or...? Uh, at this stage, they still believe in eradication, and uh, we're, you know, desperately working as an industry to um, get those, uh, you know, areas where it is contained and hopefully eradicate it. Um, it's going to be one hell of a battle, and people in the industry and the government have put in, you know, uh, about a hundred million dollars trying to stop it in the last twelve months. Um, all well worth it. I don't know. It's going to be tough. There's no doubt about it. It's slowly spreading, and um, we can only hope and pray that uh, it does. I've worked bees in Canada and um, England and places like that, and it will be devastating uh, to the industry for about you know at least ten or twelve years probably until we can figure out how to live with it somehow. I guess. So that's the story. We've got to learn to live with it. Have we liked a cane toad and other things? Somehow, eventually, uh, you know, like um, like I said, it's slowly creeping out, and um, you know, if, I think we can contain it if people do the right thing. Um, even if you've got one beehive in the backyard, they're supposed to be registered with the DPI in various states. And, um, you know, unfortunately, some people are moving those beehives out of the restricted zones and taking the mite with them, um, which is, you know, spreading it around the state of New South Wales. So, I mean, we're very lucky to have got the pollination event, you know, in the almond industry and things like that under the way this year um, because, you know, of the spread and things like that. So... We just uh, we're all holding our breath. It's been a tough four years coming down with COVID, and then you know we're we're basically in B COVID, where you've got to get all your permits and do everything. We've all had to do the run from Queensland down through Burke and Cobar because the mites on the coast. So we're taking the livestock through the Western Country to get to Robinvale and Mildura, um, and then we'll truck them back to Queensland that way. And just like COVID, we've got to fill out a whole bunch of permits. We can't go certain places and stop certain things. We can't touch certain things. So it's very, yeah, it's been a long four years of restrictions. <laughs> and, yeah, but Jesus. all all of that relies on people's good um, good offices, if you like, you know, that uh, they do the right thing. But uh, And obviously some people don't. Um, remember when we used to have tick gates and you'd have to go through the border, across the border? And what about Western Australia? Have they got, they've got... Um, restrictions haven't you? you've got to go through restrictions there to get into wa yeah but, but i suppose Nobody people really goes there <laughs> well yeah i mean I, I don't know if there's beekeepers in what wa there probably there obviously is but um yeah it seems to me um i don't know as you say you've probably got to learn to live with it but that's a that's a great shame in lots of ways yeah yeah incredibly devastating might you know if if it attaches to yourself it'll be about some having something the size of a basketball attached to you and, um, you know, in New Zealand, when it came in, it wiped out the industry, um, you know, for a good number of years. And, uh, you know, if it gets away on us here, it'll be the same thing. We're the last country in the world not to have it. 
and uh, we'd been doing one hell of a job keeping it out. They're still not sure how it got here. Um, but, uh, you know, it just turned up in Newcastle last year to our chagrin as an industry. And many people have, you know, lost a lot of money and time um, and their businesses are on hold. And, you know, they've killed 25,000 beehives so far and entire operations, you know, numbering in the thousands have been wiped out and um, killed to uh, try and contain that. And like I said, many people have just had to put their lives on hold and go and try and, you know, help the effort and um, lost hundreds of thousands of dollars in their own businesses trying to help contain this. So we're doing our best as an industry. And of course, you know, the, the uh, fruit and veg guys are pretty worried. And um, on Landline the other day, there were people talking about, you know, the lowering of pollination success in their orchards and stuff like that around Newcastle and small crop farms. And um, yeah, it's a, it's a real thing and we're all doing our best, but we are here this year and i was just giving you a ring to let you know that the, mm. you might see the bee trucks with hundreds of thousands of bees on the back still rolling through and and you're in the almonds you're in the yeah, almonds we're today, all heading eh? into the almonds or all the almond orchards are flower at this time of year around robinvale swan hill mildura griffith and they all need bees they're sort of 100 percent reliant on yeah. honeybee pollination to get those nuts and um then a lot of guys after that will go back up to bundaberg on avocados and macadamias a lot of guys go to seed canola and apples orange uh, apples and things around um stanthorpe or wherever so the for the next three months you know the bees are really important to move around and do those pollination jobs that the farmers require to get that food crop in and uh yeah we're trying to continue that and keep that happening so, good on you murray great to talk to you mate. mate keep up the good work see ya, see ya. Do, bye, bye. <laughs> i work in the forestry industry in new south wales says jamie and have graded and chalked up hardwood saw logs for more years than I can remember. There are two key numbers that are chalked up on the saw logs. One number on the top of the other, often with the line between the two numbers. That's exactly right, Jamie, tell me. The top number is the diameter of the log at its halfway point, referred to as centre diameter. The bottom number is the length of the saw log in decimetres. So if a saw log is chalked up as 67 over 113, Jamie, we should have talked to you, if a saw log is chalked up as 67, say, over 113, it means that the saw log is 11.3 metres long <coughs> with a centre diameter of 67 centimetres. I've been listening to your show even longer than I've been grading hardwood saw logs. <laughs> Says Jamie Wilson. I, w I love the show and I wish you all the best for the future. Take care, Macca. Jamie, I will. Thank you for that. listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.